scripture this morning is from First Peter 5. We've been going through a series of sermons on the book of First Peter, and today we're at the very end, the last chapter, the last word. So we're going to read First Peter chapter 5. This is a reading of God's words. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not a, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a brother, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Amen. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we so need you this hour, this time, this season. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need your strength. We need your comfort. We need your direction. And we give you thanks that you, we can find all of that in your word. Your word gives us everything we need to not just survive but thrive. So help us hear it. Help us hear your voice through your word, through your messenger. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to look at this idea of strength. We're going to look at the idea of what does it mean to be strong? It's a season where we need to be strong. <laughs> There's so much that is happening in our world that we need to be strong for ourselves, for our family, for our community. What does it mean? What does strength mean? You know, when I was growing up, to be a man meant that uh, to be a, a strong man meant that I should never have any, uh, I should never project any weakness. Um, being a man meant don't ever let them see you sweat. It meant uh, never crying, never showing any kind of vulnerability. And I grew up kind of thinking that's the way that I should be. That's how I'm supposed to be strong. And as a result of that, I experienced later in life a lot of dark things. I've experienced a lot of depression. Um, I've experienced a lot of shame. And it took me into a very dark place. I felt isolated and stressed. And that's a result of what many people today consider toxic masculinity, and it has bitter fruits. Uh, today, God gives us another vision. There's another way of being strong. It's very countercultural. Today, we're going to look at God's vision of strength is actually 
comes from weakness. God's view of strength starts with admitting our own weakness. It means being vulnerable. God's view of strength is very different than what we consider, what what our world considers strength. And it also means using our strengths for others, to bless others, to encourage others, to lift other people up. And that fruit of that life, of that kind of strength, is a life of stability, a life of hope, a life of flourishing. So today we're going to look at what that looks like. Peter closes out his letter. He writes this letter talking about true strength, and he wants to encourage us to stay strong, especially in these trying times. So to break it down, I want to talk about strength in three ways. How do I, how am I to be strong in the Lord? Just three things. One, use your strength to serve. Secondly, find strength in weakness. Finally, rest in God's strength. Each of these are countercultural ideas that Peter gives us that will help us to stay strong in midst of difficult times. And the first thing is this, use your strength to serve. Use your strength to serve. Uh, Peter writes this letter to Asian Christians. They're undergoing suffering. They're being uh, verbally assaulted, but soon that's going to turn very violent and very physical. So Peter writes this letter to prepare them for what is coming. For all the persecution that's going to come their way. And he closes out this letter by specifically addressing elders, leaders of the church. During um, difficult times, leadership is often the first thing that is assaulted. Leadership comes under pressure. Um, I've seen that during the pandemic. Pastors and elders are very stressed uh, they're very, they're in very difficult circumstances. They have to make a lot of hard decisions. I was talking to a pastor last week and he was saying that at his church, his church decided to meet outdoors in a parking lot. They adhere to all of the social distancing. They wore masks and some of his leaders, they felt like we shouldn't be wearing masks. They said that this part of the governmental overreach. We don't need to wear masks. And when he decided and the elders decided that they're going to stick with the those guidelines, a lot of them left. And they didn't agree. Pastors have a lot of decisions to make. Elders have decisions to make about when to meet. Should we reopen? What to do with finances? One of our elders just talked about that. John talked about the stress, financial stress of this crisis. And it's a, it's a lot of pressure. Leaders are under pressure. What do we do? How do, how do leaders lead, especially in trying times? So Peter writes this, this to elders. He closes out first by talking to elders as a fellow elder. This is what he calls himself. He could have said apostle, but rather he, he calls himself a fellow elders. And he says to elders, I know what it feels like being in the trenches. I know the hardships the struggle, the decisions. How are elders to lead? Well, this is what he says. He gives us a very countercultural idea of leadership. What does it mean to be a strong leader? In our culture, strong leaders are fearless. They're confident. They're authoritative. They're often the alpha male, uh, domineering, win at all costs. 
they are often they often lead and they extract as much as they can from their workers, often burning them out. Often workers feel dehumanized. They're cogs in a system. They burn out quickly. That's why Peter warns leaders in verse 3 that they shouldn't lead with domineering those in their charge. They shouldn't, they shouldn't lead like that. This model has a lot of problems. We've seen all throughout this year scandals with leaders, CEOs, people in power, even in churches who are very abusive. They create toxic environments. Uh, people under them feel scared. They're burnt, they feel burnt out. They're jaded. They leave the workforce. And what Peter is saying is that, hey, as Christians, we should live so differently. Our style of leadership should be totally different than that. He gives them a different model, and that model is summarized by this idea, this image of a shepherd. In verse 2, this is what Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but but by being examples of the flock. Peter gives the image of a shepherd. He could have used the image of a hunter who goes out on and who kills the prey. He could have said leaders are like generals who command the flock, who command their troops, who shout out orders. But he gives a very different image. He says leaders, faithful leaders are shepherds. Shepherds were blue collar. They were humble. It was a humble profession. Shepherds were known to be people of compassion. They were protectors and healers. They lived, often slept outside in the cold with their sheep to protect them from thieves, from wolves. They led, they were out front of the sheep. They knew every sheep by their names and names for them. And the sheep knew them and responded to them. Peter's saying that's the model of leadership. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. He says that idea of shepherd, that's who I am. I've come as a good shepherd. In uh, Matthew 20, Jesus' disciples, they're, they're having an argument. They, they often get into arguments. And this argument in Matthew 20 has to do with who's the greatest. They're having a goat argument. Who's the greatest of all time? And Peter steps up and says, I'm the goat. I'm the greatest disciple of all time. I'm the right hand of Jesus. He says he's going to build his church on me. He tells, he gives me all kinds of authority. I'm, I'm the greatest. And Jesus listens in on this conversation and he interrupts. What does he tell them? Notice he doesn't tell them isn't it, that there is no greatest. He actually says there is a greatest, but it's, he says it's not like what you think. Jesus in Matthew 20 says greatness is about service. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the person who serves the most. Jesus, Jesus is saying the greatest leader is the greatest servant of all. And he says, in fact, that's why Jesus is the greatest because he says he's come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus says, I model that leadership. Jesus' leadership style can be summarized by servant leadership. The greatest leader is the greatest servant. When you think about Jesus, he had all kind, he had all strength and all power, but he only used his power to serve others. That's why on the cross, people were very confused. They said, Jesus, if you are, if you have all power, use it on yourself. Get yourself down from the cross. Even on the cross, Jesus would not use any of his power for himself, even at the cross. He refused to use his power for himself. His mission was to use all of that power to serve, to bless, to give, ultimately as a ransom for many. Peter saying, follow that example of Jesus, that our style of leadership, our strength are always for others. Uh, we can use our strength to lift ourselves up, or we can use our strength to lift other people up. We can use our authority to command, or we can use our authority to bless. Peter's saying we need to use our strengths, our gifts, in service to others. Donald Clifton, he um, he's an academic who wrote a book called Strength Finders. It's a principle that used by corporations and businesses and churches. And in Strength Finders, uh, Clifton said that everybody has strength in one of four areas or multiple areas. Uh, there's relating. These are interpersonal strengths that connect people. The second area is impacting. These are strengths that have to do with influence. There are striving gifts that have to do with building motivation, energy. So people call this to get the woo. Final one is thinking. These are strengths that have to do with information and teaching and processing. All of us have a strength. We just need to find it. We need to identify it. This overlaps with spiritual gifts often when we're also given spiritual gifts on top, which often overlap and sanctify our natural gifts. But we're all given gifts, both natural and spiritual. And what Peter is saying is harness those gifts, not for yourself, but in service to God and for other people. These strengths are gifts. You didn't earn them. C.S. Lewis says it's like a woman with blue eyes being proud that she got blue eyes. And Lewis asks, what does she do to get her blue eyes? Did she work out to get her blue eyes? No, they are just pure gifts given to you. Everything we have has been given, ultimately. What Peter's saying is that we are to harness those things in service to people. And when we use our gifts and our strengths for people, there's a joy in that. That's why coaching or parenting can be one of the biggest joys because we're, we're seeing other people succeed. Uh, but it's a selfless act. That's why Peter says in, as a motivation in verse 4, this is what he says. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter says there's an ultimate shepherd. And one day he's going to come, and for those who have served faithfully, He's going to give us an unfading crown. In Greco-Roman times, during the Olympic, an athletic event, the victor, the winner, would be given a crown. 
but it was a leafy crown. It's a leafy crown made of plants, of vines. Imagine having a leafy crown. You did all that work. You won the race, the Olympics. They give you a leafy crown. The problem with that is a leafy crown doesn't last very long. I mean, you wear it around town, maybe for a week or two, a month. But after that, it's, it's, it's gone. And Peter's saying, man, every earthly victory and, and crown is perishing. Man, people have short-term memories. They, they remember you. They give you applause now, but later you're forgotten. Every crown on this earth is fleeting. Every award, every recognition is fleeting. So Peter says, work for that crown, which is eternal. For that eternal crown that's not fading. One pastor was telling me about one of his best elders. He's retiring from ministry and he shares a story about one of his most faithful elders all these years. Um, and this elder, he says, was so selfless. He would volunteer and tell no one. He would come to church. He would clean the bathrooms. On Saturdays, he'd come. He'd mow the lawns. He's the first one at prayer meetings. Faithful for decades. He didn't want anyone to know anyone. He didn't want any kind of acknowledgement, any kind of award. And as he was retiring, he, he, he had this final conversation with his elders like, man, how, how do you work? Like, are you just naturally humble and selfless? And he says he'd never forget what this elder says. He says that he actually wanted glory. He's like, I, I do want glory. But I want glory from my king on the last day. He says, I want glory. I'm greedy for glory. I actually want the applause. I want the glory. But he says, I, I want to save that all for the last day. I want that glory to come from my king. That's the thing that we strive for. That's the thing that drives us is our king. Peter starts out by talking about using our strengths in service to our king, in service to our fellow man. But here's the second thing. Secondly, Peter says, find strength in weakness. Use our strength for our king, but secondly, find strength even in our weakness. Everybody has strengths, but probably most of you are focused in on your weaknesses. Isn't that right? We all have strengths, but most of us are really Focus on the things that we don't do well, our weaknesses, our faults. But here's the good news. The good news that Peter shares is that, that our weaknesses are actually our greatest strengths. Our weaknesses are actually our greatest strengths. When we humble ourselves and we lean and call upon God, that's when God does his best work. This is what he says in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 5, Peter says that we are to clothe ourselves in humility. That it's supposed to surround us. We're supposed to be all about it. And when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. And he says that the prideful, if you're prideful, you feel like you don't need God. God is against you. Imagine if the God of the universe is against you. But he says, in contrast, 
we humble ourselves, God himself will lift us up. You know, one of the hidden blessings of this pandemic is that many of us have come to the end of ourselves. You know, we thought at the beginning of it, Ashur did that, man, we can get through it. Let's just, let's just be strong. But wave after wave, month after month passes and we're like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. We feel isolated. We feel the walls closing in on us. We feel like maybe this is hopeless. Maybe I am not strong enough. And many of us have hit this rock bottom place. But Peter says there's a blessing to that. When we come to the end of ourselves, that's when we are most likely to call upon God. That's when we're most likely to call upon him. This is what it says in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. One of the greatest ironies of Christianity is that our strengths can be our greatest weakness. Our strengths can be our greatest weakness because when we're strong, we're most likely to feel like we don't need God. That's why Jesus says it's very difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God because we trust our wealth. If we're strong, we're smart, if we've got all kinds of resources, we might feel like, God, I got it. I can do it. I, I have this situation under control. Our strengths can be our greatest weakness, but the flip side of that is our weaknesses can be our greatest strengths. Because when we're weak, we stop relying on ourselves. We surrender and we say, God, I need you. That's why some of the people who find God are the people who hit rock bottom. They've come to this rock bottom place and they're like, I cannot do it. I'm addicted. I'm broken. And I need your help, God, so desperately. Our weaknesses can be our greatest strength. It's when we are weak that God is at work. He will lift us up. In verse 7, it says we can cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. We can unload all of our anxieties. You know, anxiety is a sign of pride because when we're anxious, we're thinking it's all on me. I got to figure, I got to come up with the plan. I have, have a course of action. It's all me. It's all my plan. It's a, it's a sign of pride. But Peter says, cast your anxiety. Bring that to God. Bring it to him. He will take it. Our lives are ultimately in his hand. Victor Hugo, the famous uh, French poet, said this. Have courage for the greatest, great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily tasks, go to sleep in peace. God is at, God is awake. He says, when you sleep, God is awake. Notice he doesn't say, don't do anything, just trust God. He actually doesn't say that. He says, after you've done everything you can, after you've done everything you can, go to sleep in peace. Because God's at work. God got it. Rest in him. Peter Peter says, cast all your anxieties upon God and and go to sleep in peace. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I was, um, I went into my daughter. She is turning 12. Her 
her room to pray with her. My daughter, is, she's turning 12, and she has 12-year-old girl anxieties, which are a lot, actually. She is um, she is going to, to middle school next year. She doesn't know where. Uh, she's in the middle of a pandemic. She's not seeing her friends. She feels isolated. She's 12. She has... She's starting to have body image issues. She's wrestling with all of these things. And man, as I pray for her, I just, as a father, I just want to take all of her anxieties. Just want to just give it to me. You don't have to worry about anything. I got you. We love you. I want to take all of her anxieties upon myself. You know, that's God's heart for us. His heart is that he doesn't want us to be anxious. He wants to take all of our anxieties. He wants to take all of our fears on himself. That's how Jesus is different from any other dictator, any kind of pharaoh, CEO, leader. The the leaders of this age and of all ages, they want their people to be anxious because that is a motivator for them to work hard. They don't care that you're, you're anxious. They want you to be anxious. They want you to work hard. They want you to work you to the ground, but Jesus is the exact opposite. He's a different kind of leader. He says, I want you to rest. And in fact, that's a commandment. It's called the Sabbath. And I want you to be rid of your anxiety. I want, in fact, I want to take your anxiety from you. I care for your inner lives, for your souls. I've come to free you. I've come to give you rest. Cast your anxieties upon me. I care for you. It means that in application that we should be people who are constantly resting. It's the Sabbath. We should also give God all of our anxiety. So much, so many times, especially for me, I bottle up my fears, my anxiety, my shame, all these dark things, and I don't tell anybody, including God. But God says, bring all those things before me. That's what the Psalms are about. Bring your tears, your fears, your anger, your anxieties, your uncertainty. Bring them all. Give that all to me. I got it. We are also to bring all those things to other people. We're to be vulnerable. You know, sometimes we don't admit things because people will think less of us, when in fact the opposite is true. You know, when you confess things to people, they actually think more of you. They think of you as brave, as courageous. We're starting prayer and encouragement groups. And these are places where we are also to, to confess to each other. We are to share our burdens with each other. Weakness is strength. That's the paradox of the Christian life. The way up is the way down. The strongest people are the ones who admit that they are the weakest and they rely on God's power. That's what the Christian life is about. It's about weakness. It's about embracing it, making friends with it, using that to rely on God and his power. And that's the final point. We finally and ultimately, we rest in God's strength, especially now. In this final section, Peter gives us a final warning. He's been saying, man, we, there's a lot to, to battle against. But Peter, he closes it out by giving us the greatest warning and the greatest encouragement, both together. This is what he says in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The Christian life is warfare, and Peter's been going through that. There's all kinds of things going against us. We're our own worst enemies in some ways, our sin, our stubbornness, our pride. There's all kinds of things in our culture, in our world, that are contrary to God, that that begs us to follow them. The final enemy is the devil. And Peter says, be wary, be mindful. The Greek word for devil is enemy. It also can mean slanderer or accuser. Devil is always accusing us. He's always telling us subtly through the voice, our own voice, the voice of others, you are, you are so terrible. You, you're li- you wasted your life. You're worthless. You're nothing. The devil always wants us to doubt God. That's what he did at the very beginning, God in the Garden of Eden. God is not, he doesn't love you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. The devil wants us to deny God, his love, his existence. He wants us to drag, he wants to drag us away from him. But what does Peter say to do? He says in verse nine, resist him. You know, this last week there was a viral video, I don't know if you saw it, of a man in Utah who is being stalked by a mountain lion. He's being stalked by a mountain lion and for six minutes, he's walking backwards. He's walking backwards as this mountain lion is approaching him. Uh, he is yelling at this mountain lion as he backs up from him. He is, uh, he, he throws stones, rocks at this, it's a terrifying thing. Uh, experts say, you've watched this video say, when you, if you are ever approached by a mountain lion, make yourself very big. Make yourself very big, yell, scream, throw rocks, make yourself big. The worst thing you can do when the mountain lion is stalking you is run, is to turn your back because prey run. If you're prey, that's what prey do. They run, they run away. They make themselves small, they're scared. But when you approach a mountain lion, you're, you're supposed to stand up. That's what Peter says. Peter says you're being, uh, you're being stalked. By ambush predator, the devil. And what you are to do to the devil is you are actually just, you're supposed to stand up to him. Stand up to the devil. The devil's gonna tell you that you are terrible, that you're a sinner. I love this hymn that says, uh, that the devil is attacking you, telling you you're a sinner, and he says, I know them all and 10,000 more, but God knoweth none. Talk back to the devil. Say, devil, I know all of my sins. I actually know 10,000 more you did not mention, but you know who doesn't know my sin? God. He forgave my sin. He put my, my sin on the cross, on Calvary. Resist the devil. Resist his voice, his temptations, his accusations. In verse 9, it says, not only that, resist him firm in your faith. Faith is looking away from yourself and looking to Christ. Faith is all about saying, it's not me, it's him. It's not my goodness. It's not my power. It's looking to the power of God. And that's the final thing. Peter says, look to God, look to his promises, look to all that he is. It says in verse 10, 
And after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Peter says that no matter what happens, God gives us this promise that if we're in in him, we have faith in him, he will restore us. So many of us have lost many things during this pandemic, during this season. The promise is God will restore everything. He will confirm us. Some of us feel attacked, broken, but God will say to us, you're my child, you're my beloved. He will strengthen and establish you. These are architectural terms. He will give you a firm foundation, and in him you will not be moved. That's Peter's testimony. Peter's testimony, remember Peter was arrogant. He said he's the greatest ever. He was prideful and what happened to Peter? God humbled him. Peter, when Jesus needed him the most, denied even knowing Jesus three separate times. He fell so far away. But what happened? Jesus resurrected from the dead. What did he do with Peter? He forgave Peter and he called Peter to be what? A shepherd. He said, feed my sheep, tend my lamb. He said to Peter, Peter, I forgive you, and I'm calling you to be a shepherd. That's why Peter has so much humility. Peter's life is an example of someone who was restored, confirmed, strengthened, established. Peter said, I lived it. No matter how deep in sin you are, you can multiply your sin times 100. It's no match for God's grace. It's no match for his goodness. No matter how far you've fallen, God can restore you, confirm you, strengthen, and establish you. That's the promise of God. How does First Peter end? Well, Peter, this final section of First Peter, this is the final section of this whole theme of exile. It ends with what seems like a pretty fairly typical ending. Uh, Peter gives out some greetings. But notice this one, one part of this greeting, which is unusual. In verse 13, Peter writes, says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter writes this at the close of his letter. He sends out some greetings. It seems fairly prototypical of any kind of letter. But what's interesting is in verse 13, it says, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. That's unusual. Scholars for for centuries have puzzled over who is she? Is this Peter's wife? Is he married? Why is she at Babylon? It's perplexing. What is that about? Uh, in, In many ways, this is an Easter egg, an Easter egg, you know, in in movies. And in video games, sometimes there are Easter eggs. These are small little uh, clues for the careful reader, careful viewer. It's a little treat for them. For instance, in that uh, in the movie Fight Club, uh, there is a Starbucks cup in every scene of that movie. Did you know that? That's an Easter egg. It's a symbol of corporations. They're everywhere. They've taken over. Can't escape it. Little Easter egg. This last section of Peter, he gives us a little Easter egg. He mentions Babylon. And it's for the careful student of exile. 
If you're following from this sermon series from Daniel to now, you're a student of exile. You should understand the language of exile. Peter says, someone from Babylon greets you. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? For the student of exile, we know what that's about. Daniel was a prisoner in in Babylon. God's people were prisoners in exile in Babylon. He shouts out Babylon. What's happening right at this moment when Peter writes this letter is Babylon no longer exists. Peter is calling out Babylon, which in the first century was a deserted city. That The whole empire of Babylon at that time had totally fallen. In fact, it it was it vanished from the face of the earth. That city, that power was vanquished. It was reduced to nothing. And Peter says, shout out to Babylon. He says, Babylon says hi. And what does he mean by that? He meant that great thing that was enslaved people, that people were so afraid of, that oppressive force no longer exists. It's nowhere. And it's a sign for us. It's a symbol. Babylon is a symbol of something that was great that no longer exists. So many of us have Babylons that we fear. These are oppressive forces. These are nations. The pandemic is a type of Babylon, that thing which seems so big and massive and threatening. Leaders, world leaders, government, all kinds of chaos. It seems so dark and overwhelming and powerful. But Peter says, remember Babylon? It's no more. Don't be scared of the Babylons of this world. Don't be afraid of this pandemic or threats. They're going to inflict some damage for sure. But you know what will outlast them? The kingdom of God. Peter says, remember, you're part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Not just one nation, but all the nations, a people from all the nations for all time, not just now, but for all time. You're part of a people of God. Remember that. And when this whole thing is over, the Babylons of this world are going to perish. You're going to be the last one standing. Kingdom of God will endure. One day you will be home. You, you, the exile will be over. One day we'll be in the presence of our chief shepherd. He will receive us. We're part of this eternal story. If you're feeling weak this morning, God says, rest in me. Rest in me. Don't feel overwhelmed by the trials, the Babylons, the things that seem so big. They will perish. God will vanquish them. You're a holy nation. You are so beloved by God. Cast all your anxieties upon him. And the strength you do have, use it for other people. Serve him. Serve your community. And one day, heaven will come down and we'll be home. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks that this morning you give us such amazing, unbelievable promises. Father, this morning, many of us feel like we are in Babylon, that place of exile, that place of temptation, that place of disappointment. But help us to remember that Babylon will soon be over. 
Help us to remember your promise to be always with your people. Thank you that you are chief shepherd, that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you are with us. Help us to delight, God, that you have overcome all that is evil, that you have sent your son to be our forgiveness, our righteousness, our hope. Help us to rest in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.